Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to create a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a prefix meal for pickup. Welcome to Last Call with Richard Krause, the podcast dedicated to remembering the tales and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks, and now I'm slinging stories. Unlike many of the other bars that I profile on this podcast, CBGB Omfug wasn't known for its food or drinks. Over the years, the club's small menu included hamburgers and pizza produced in a kitchen that has often been referred to as a public health hazard. It was Hilly's Chili, however, the menu's signature dish that became legendary, but not because of the taste. Whipped up in a filthy, industrial-sized pot, the recipe included the usual ingredients, tomato sauce, beans, a handful of spices, and some other ingredients unique to the club. Model and Playboy playmate B.B. Buell says that Stiv Baders of the Dead Boys told her that the band used to, well, flavor the chili with things that didn't belong in chili. Gross. You nasty. Whether that's true or not, when I asked Lucasta Ross, one of the founding members of CBGB regulars The B-Girls, if she had ever eaten there, she said, Oh, God, no. I think the, the Dead Boys did. They were when they were signed to Hilly. He gave them beer, and um, they could eat food there. But no. Yeah, I, I, was, I was raised with better cuisine than that. <laughs> <laughs> Stid Bader uh, says that the the Dead Boys used to like flick their cigarettes into the pots of chili, and yeah, they were quite the scoundrels. Let me tell you, <laughs> they loved practical jokes, and I didn't. And they play them on amongst themselves all the time. Just like, you guys are insane. <laughs> you know, they truly were. The antics of the dead boys aside, it was such an anything-goes kind of kitchen that no one even batted an eye when one of the cooks brought his pet rat in on every shift. Long before she became the celebrated writer and director of movies like American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, I Shot Andy Warhol, and Dolly Land, Mary Heron was a regular at CBGB's. She helped start and write for Punk Magazine and became the first person to interview the Ramones and Talking Heads from their home base at CBGB's. I asked her if she ever tried the chili. Never. I, in fact, I think every so often you would see somebody like, very rarely, but somebody had like food. It's like, oh my God, did nobody think they ordered food here? But I remember I knew the cook there who was a nice girl. And it's like, but why do they need to cook? Nobody ever eats there. Mm. Legendary rock photographer and CBGB regular Bob Gruen always avoided eating at the club. In the very early days, he made chili. You're supposed to eat there, which yeah. was not. No. Not a place you eat at. <laughs> There's lots more to come with Mary Heron, Bob Gruen, and Lucasta Ross in the after party. Binky Phillips of the band The Planets, who opened for the Ramones at CBGB, talks of once poking his head into the kitchen only to see a, quote, fresh and wet pile of dog shit about the size and shape of half a cantaloupe left behind by owner Hilly Crystal's dog, Jonathan. The dog was given free reign of the joint and nobody ever cleaned up after them. With no poop and scoop policy in place, the club's floor and stage were often laden with reminders of Jonathan's presence. 
Bob Gruen remembers Jonathan and another dog that guarded the club. Since it was locked up at night and during the day, they wouldn't sit around the club. And I think that if they found it, they would probably throw it out. But it was a possibility that when you're walking towards the stage, you could, if not, if you weren't careful, you could step in some dog shit. It was that kind of club. Lucasta Ross recalls seeing evidence of the presence of the dogs during the club's daylight hours. And if you ever saw it during the day, it was even more repulsive, you know, with the dog piles all over the floor that Hilly would then pick up with his hands. <laughs> but, uh, so I've heard about the dogs. They were very casual about cleaning up after them. Yes, I'd say that's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> even when it was first opened, the club felt run down and came with a lived-in smell that persisted over the decades. And don't get me started on the bathrooms. I still have nightmares when I think back to the restroom David Byrne called legendarily nasty. A commentator on the website Polestar once wrote, the bathroom was not a cool or cultural thing. It was a toxic wasteland that someone should have been put in prison for allowing to exist. Someone else wrote, if you go to the bathroom there and go home with just hepatitis, you're one lucky dude. Lucasta Ross remembers her first time seeing the legendarily filthy bathrooms. I remember asking, I said, where's the bathroom? He goes, oh, Paul, hold on a second. And he had Gita Gash, a company who was a cheetah's old lady from the Dead Boys, and had her accompany me down to the washroom, and I just went, no, 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 part of me is touching any part of this. So from then on, Arturo would just take me across the road and I'd use the loft bathroom. It was just, it was repulsive. Bob Gruen remembers the legendarily filthy bathrooms, but says he didn't go there to go to the bathroom. He went for the music. Because so many people were so drunk and stoned in there, the bathroom became covered in graffiti. And to avoid having people shoot up in the toilet, he took off the toilet doors, which made it rather embarrassing if you really had to use it, you know. Um, and uh, I think he left them on in the ladies' room, so some of the men went into the ladies' room. It was very uh, co-gender uh, co or whatever. Yeah. We didn't, but because the bathroom became so disgusting and covered with graffiti, it became something that people who were not used to that Lower East Side kind of 150-year-old uh, ambiance, um, they would talk about the bathrooms. Like, oh, my God, have you seen the bathroom? Seen this? We didn't go there for the bathroom. Uh, a lot of the guys, most of the guys, you know, it was much easier to just step out into the alley and piss in the corner than go downstairs to the bathroom. <laughs> so um, that's what most of the guys did, you know, and a lot of the girls. And it's like, uh, you know, it was pretty loose back then. But it was funny to me as somebody who was there to see people now hearing about CBGBs and thinking that the bathroom was somehow an attraction or a, a note part of the club was not, not it was just a disgusting bathroom but you went there for the music and the friends you went there to meet people you didn't go there to go to the bathroom <laughs> you went to the alley to meet the <laughs> still for a buck fifty you could get a quart of beer and a pack of cigarettes and as long as you didn't eat hilly's chili you'd likely survive unlike the unlucky bowery citizens who would often be found dead just outside the front door first thing in the morning Nope, CBGB isn't significant for its contributions to the food and beverage industry. It's significant for its oversized influence on rock and roll history. 
it's the Punk Rock Cavern Club, a launching pad for new genres of music that still reverberate today. Punk rock would likely have happened without CBGB, but the grungy little club gave it a home base. The bold-faced names who got their starts there, risking wiring that could get a performer electrocuted simply by touching a microphone, bands like Blondie, the Ramones, the Talking Heads, they dominate the story, but the true legacy of the place is the sense of community it created for the outsiders and misfits that made CBGB home base. It was never about the place, said owner Hilly Crystal's son Dana. It was about the people. It was definitely that. Says Lucasta Ross, who was introduced to CBGB culture by her friend Arturo Vega, the graphic designer who created the Ramones' famous logo and is sometimes known as the Fifth Ramon. It was definitely that, and uh, I began to really like it because Arturo had introduced me to so many people, and... And the more people I knew, the more fun it was and the less I thought about it as a pigsty. Um, but it was, you know, I'd sit down somewhere and some guy would come up to me and goes, I want to be a dog. And I'd just go, oh, get away. You know, you'd lick my arm and I'd just send him on the floor. Go. You want to walk, be a dog? Go walk on the floor. And just stupid things like that, you know, and, and guys in, in bands trying to ask me out and that's like, absolutely not. And, uh, yeah, it was just, you never, you never knew who you were going to see and people who played a lot. You know, it's, once you knew people, it was lots of fun. But, she adds, no matter how many friends surrounded you, you had to be careful while you were in the club. There weren't a lot of people to be trusted during those days. <laughs> Is that true? Because, you know, again, Mary Heron, Bob Gruen, had told me that you'd, you'd see the same people. It was a very sort of a regulars bar. You would see mm-hmm. people over and over again. Um, and, you know, one would assume, I guess, that you would get to know them, but maybe you could get to know them and still not trust them. Well, yeah, because the thing was there were so many drug addicts, mm. and you can't trust the drug addict, you know. He, he said something like, can you watch my purse while I go? It's like, even if you'd known that person for six months, you knew your wallet would be empty. In this podcast, I'll talk about the unruly story of an accidental cultural incubator born out of a unique moment in history where outsiders were brought together, celebrated, and encouraged to be themselves. Mary Heron was one of those outsiders. All you had to do to be a member was turn up. That's all you had to do. And, and I remember the very first time we went with Legs and John, um, Roberta Bailey was on the door, who's still a friend of mine, and she was very nice to us, and she let us in for free. And Roberta, you know, was always friendly to me, and that mm-hmm. was important. Like, you know, she would always let me in for free, and it was, she always was, you know, uh, w- treated me warmly, and that was great. So I felt like I had a, an in there. And, and then even though, you know, you end up knowing only really intensely a small portion of the people there, mm-hmm. but you're, you're a member. And I remember the first time I went to, there was this bookstore called Cinemabilia, where both, I think, Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell had worked and, and was in the East Village. And the first time I walked into CBGB's, Terry Ork, who, who met, ran the bookstore and also managed television, when I went and brought my whatever I was buying um, to the county, he said, oh, you're a CBGB. I, and I'm like, yes. And I felt, oh, I've been anointed. I am definitely an official member of this group. So I, I thought it was very, I felt it was real belonging. And then later I remember Lester Bangs, the great and late lamented Lester Bangs said to me, 
you know, when you first walk in, you think, you know, and there were some people, a few people dressed like in the hardcore punk style, the Dead Boys did and the Ramones did. There were other people dressed more like hippies. But he said, when you, but, but the dominant thing was more intimidating. And he said, when you first walk in, you think, oh, you know, this is all so harsh and intimidating. And then you realize that they're all just little lost lambs sheltering from the storm. That everybody in there, I think, in some ways had had a difficult childhood or come from a place where they weren't understood. And there was definitely this kind of misfit, island of misfit toys. Violence-oriented punk rock music. Don't underestimate this particular kind of music, Quince. Let me take you down to one of these clubs. You've got to see it with your own eyes to believe it, Quince. Persuade a kid to act like that. Maybe the greatest persuader there is. Music. <laughs> the story of CBGB, the home of punk rock, doesn't actually begin on Lower Manhattan's grungy Bowery. Our story starts blocks away at 62 West 9th Street in Greenwich Village at a restaurant and jazz bar called Hilly's, owned by Hilly Crystal. A former Marine, Crystal studied music at the Settlement Music School and was once a singer in the men's choral group at Radio City Music Hall. After a failed stint as a jazz singer, he got into the hospitality business as the manager of the internationally renowned Village Vanguard on 7th Avenue in Manhattan, booking legendary musicians like Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, and John Coltrane. Good evening. And, uh... Welcome back again to Bill's Vanguard. He also co-founded the Rheingold Central Park Music Festival, a low-cost series of summer concerts that featured wild double bills like 1968's Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention sharing the bill with blues guitarist Buddy Guy and 1969's Led Zeppelin with B.B. King, all for the price of around a dollar a ticket. The shows lost money, but Commissioner of Parks August Heckscher argued against raising the price, insisting that doubling the cost to $2 a ticket would have been, quote, too expensive for a lot of New Yorkers. The shortfall was absorbed by the above-the-title sponsor, who changed every few years. Eventually, by 1976, after August and Hilly were long gone, ticket prices swelled to a whopping $3. In 1966, Crystal opened his own joint, Hilly's, a restaurant that featured, according to the Villager newspaper, Hip Decor, Coco Van at $3.95 a portion, and bell-bottomed waitresses. Hilly, with a guitar he kept behind the bar, was always ready to perform, and on the weekend he featured music, mostly standards and show tunes sung by the likes of Bette Midler, who would come down and light up the place after the curtain fell on her Broadway performances in Fiddler on the Roof. Popular though it may have been, Hilly's closed in 1969 after a dispute with the neighbors. Hey, we're closed. No more customers, that's it. His next stop was 315 Bowery, the only major thoroughfare in New York City never to have had a single church built on it. Bob Gruen remembers the Bowery in those days. In those days, the Bowery nowadays is a nice place, but back then the Bowery was what we called, uh, you know, now we have uh, whole, uh, what do you call it, uh, living challenged people or something. Yeah. Back then they were bombs, Bowery yeah. bombs. We used to, you know, pass out on the sidewalk and puke, uh, uh, you know, on the street. It was a disgusting place. 
And so the rent was very cheap. And, and Hilly literally needed to sell a couple of six packs of beers and he'd pay the rent. It was a rough area, once called New York City's Skid Row, and was so scrappy, the 1891 Broadway show A Trip to Chinatown even featured a song about the perils of the place. The Bowery, the Bowery, they say such things and they do strange things on the Bowery, the Bowery, I'll never go there Crystal's hopes of recapturing some of the magic of his old restaurant with Hillies on the Bowery were short-lived. The rough-and-tumble neighborhood brought with it a different clientele, but as Crystal told me in this never-before-heard interview from August 1992, contrary to rumor, Hillies on the Bowery was never specifically a biker bar. It was never a biker bar. It was uh, friends of mine or the Hells Angels uh, used to come in before. But, you know, they came in off and on and less and less through the years. It was never really a biker bar. Right. That's what some people said. With no up-and-coming Broadway stars doing drop-bys, the place floundered, and by 1972, Hilly's On the Bowery was shuttered. New York City was in decay. Within two years, the city was near bankruptcy and asking the federal government for a bailout, which was denied. Nicknamed Fear City, crime was rampant, murders were common, and pamphlets handed out at airports warned, until things change, stay away from New York City if you possibly can. I'm telling you the crime rate in New York will kill you. Tom Wybrandt, singer-songwriter and guitarist with the Miami, said it was like an endless loop of Kojak. Yes, this is the New York City Police Department, Lieutenant Kojak. It was, as Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, a sucked orange, a city out of juice. The original guitar player in Richard Hell and the Voidoids, Ivan Julian, however, remembers it was the perfect place for a 20-something musician to live because monthly rent was inexpensive, only 120 bucks. It was dangerous and it was edgy, but it was cheap enough to play host to young, penniless artists, even if you'd occasionally find a dead body in the hallway, as Blondie keyboardist Jimmy Destry did at least once. Into that volatile atmosphere, this creative petri dish, Crystal rebranded and relaunched Hillies on the Bowery as CBGB on December 10th, 1973. The unusual name was a manifesto of a sort for the kind of music Crystal wanted to showcase. CBGB stands for what I intended to do, which was country, blue, grass, blues. The club itself was nothing special. I guess it's been described pretty accurately as a, as a long dungeon-like, uh, I mean, it's actually pretty high ceilings, or 14 foot high ceilings, but it's narrow, it's like 25 feet long wide and 170 feet, 167 feet long, so you can get that feeling. It's, it's kind of picturesque because it it's wood, it's basically made of wood and, and the walls are plaster with uh, pieces of posters and all kinds of stuff on them, so it looks kind of a, we keep it uh, in repair, but it looks as if it looks well used by, uh, looks interesting. <laughs> Bob Gruen recalls some other details about the club's interior. It was always things dripping from the ceiling, 
because there were pipes that went up. There was like a, a flop house hotel. I don't know if you can say flop house nowadays. You know, these uh, people, uh, homeless, uh, home challenged people used to sleep up there for, you know, $2 a night or something. So whatever was dripping from the pipes always made you wonder, was it condensation or was it something coming out of the pipes? It was really kind of gross. Um, and the floor was very uneven. My wife talks about the girls who would get their high heels caught in the cracks in the floor and fall over. You know, they are already drunk, but then they catch their heels in the crack because it was an old, old building. Hilly certainly didn't fix the floors very much. I've been told, actually, that the, that the layout of the bar was very nurturing for bands playing there. Jerry Harrison said it's long in a narrow room, so even if there's only 20 people there, they'll be at the front, so at least it feels like there's an audience. Well, I'd say 20 people, it doesn't feel long, but, mm. but I'd say, well, we do about 350, and I think if you have 50 or 60, it still feels pretty good. Yeah. 20, I don't know. To, to the band, anyway. B-girl singer Lou Castor Ross said the energy in the room depended on who was on the stage. I mean, if they hated you, the energy was pretty, uh, you know, tense. Uh, and if they really liked you and they got into you, it was just uh, the most amazing feeling. Like they have, even though it's, you know, 300 people, but they're all, you know, screaming and, and clapping and really enjoying you after a few songs, you know. And then, especially when people realized that I could really sing, then it, it 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 was great that we got excellent feedback. But like I said, it, it depended if it it's like just like here, like if uh, the Viltones got on stage after we got on stage. I mean, everybody'd be happy, bouncy, and then they got on stage, and then everybody's chopping each other up with uh, sliced glass, you know, <laughs> and and pogoing into each other and mosh pitting and all the stuff that I couldn't stand, you know. So it, it, the energy was definitely dependent upon uh, which band was playing and how the audience reacted, I'd say. Two neighborhood guys, Bill Page and Rusty McKenna, who booked music at Hilly's on the Bowery, continued to book acts at CBGB fueled by their enthusiasm for new music. Keeping with Hilly's rule of only booking bands who played original music, supposedly because he couldn't afford to pay royalty fees to the performance rights organization ASCAP, they booked the bands the more established places wouldn't touch. As Patti Smith said, there was no real venue in 1973 for people like us. We didn't fit into the cabarets or the folk clubs. After I saw what was going on with this, these bands, and artists who had no place to do their own music, and I made it uh, compulsory that this is what they had to do, is uh, make their own music, not do cover or copy, be a copy band. Then no place would let you play if you were writing your, doing your own music, unless you were well known. Right. So I did it the opposite. I said the only way you can play is if you do your own music. Yeah. And, I, and I kept uh, you know, stimulating Was there uh, a specific kind of music that you uh, geared itself towards? I've heard about a new wave policy that was brought in. New wave is a name that somebody gave to what was happening. I mean, I think it was uh, back to the basics kind of thing. It was not, uh, uh, I think, the, it was not music that was redundant or music that, you know, you heard a thousand times before. So it was new music. It was, in fact, a new wave of music. I mean, I don't think there was any specific sound except that, uh, as I said, it, a lot of it did revert back to basics. I think the basic difference in the 70s were 
people learned to play their instruments as a means of expression, and they weren't, didn't start as musicians per se, so that the music took many different uh, you know, uh, personalities. I asked Bob Gruen if he had any insight in how Hilly Crystal booked the bands at CBGB's. He didn't care what, you know, you didn't have to bring an audition tape and say, do you like my band? Because Hilly would put on anybody on the Monday night. It was called audition night, I think. And if you brought five or six friends who would buy beers, you could play. And you, and if you got 10, 10 friends who would buy beer, you could come back and play again. <laughs> you know, uh, he, he was not judgmental about the kind of music, which was brilliant because it allowed bands to learn how to be good. They didn't have to be good to play there. Mary Heron remembers Hilly Crystal as someone who said yes when everyone else was saying no. One of the greatest things you can do and, and a great artistic movements have have been caught have been created by this. Is you get one person who says yes. So Haley Crystal just said yes. He said yes to Tom Verlaine and Richard when they said they wanted to play there. He said yes to all kinds of bands if they wanted to play there. He said yes, fine, come in. You know, small cover charge. Yeah. Yes, you can play. And he created the venue. It didn't matter what he thought about new music. He allowed it to, to play and maybe he liked it, you know, but he allowed it to play. And without Hilly, there would have been no scene. For someone who made such an outsized impact on popular culture, Bob Gruen says Hilly Crystal was quite unassuming. The way I describe him is he's kind of like your uncle when your parents go out of town and leave your uncle in charge. And he doesn't really want to interact. He just wants to drink a beer and watch TV. But you kids can go in the basement and you can do whatever the hell you want. If he hears a loud crash or somebody's crying, he'll throw you out. You can't, you can't break anything. You can't hurt anybody. That's the only rules. Other than that, he doesn't care what you do. Like I say, in the early days, he just pretty much liked to be left alone. Uh, his wife was very involved in keeping order. She was kind of the principal. Uh, we called her Mrs. Hilly. And uh, she would tell you, you can't have a beer on the sidewalk. You can't, you know, don't put that cigarette out on the floor or whatever, you know. Uh, you know, clean that up or whatever, whatever you had to do, whatever you did wrong, she was the one who corrected you. Hilly never bothered. <laughs> uh, but Mrs. Hilly would tell you whether you were in line or not. Lou Castor-Ross says Hilly wasn't standoffish, just careful. I really liked Hilly. He thought I was a doll because I met him, like I said, through our, with Arturo well before anything else. And he just would sort of look and he was like, what are you doing in a dump like this? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone that I've, I've spoken to that knew him uh, said that he was a little standoffish, but uh, uh, yeah. generally speaking, a kind of warm presence. I don't know so much standoffish. I would call it as just being on his toes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a very intuitive person, too, so I can sometimes seem a bit aloof, but it's just because I'm... I'm just sort of feeling out what I'm getting from this person, you know. I, I, I think he was kind of like that, you know. He'd sort of keep his eye on you and check out, you know, just sort of see how you behaved. And I guess some people take that as standoffishness, but uh, I think he was just, you know, smart and wanted to check people out yeah. before he trusted them. One of the first acts to play the intimate stage at CBGB lied to Crystal and claimed to play some country music to get the gig. In reality, television merged the energy of punk rock with flashes of art rock and frontman Tom Berlain's cerebral lyrics. The shift in music styles brought an addition to the club's name. And I'm means and other music. 
anything. Gormandizers. Television's first CBGB gig on March 31, 1974 is often cited as the date when the club's golden age began. In total, CBGB's was open for 11,997 days and wild nights. With two, three, four, five or more bands playing on most nights, it would be impossible to list everyone who performed on that storied stage. The thing about CBGB's that people realize is how many unknown bands played there. Because they always talk about the CBGB's, the place that people played. The famous bands came yeah. from CBGB's. Well, the famous bands were the Ramones, the Talking Head, Andy, uh, Patti Smith, uh, Living Color yep. came a little later. But after a few bands like that, you run out of names. After six, six or seven <laughs> famous bands. And CBGB's had five bands a night, sometimes seven, for seven nights a week. They were open New Year's and Christmas for about 35 years. <laughs> so there are tens of thousands of bands that play the CBGB's that you never heard of. Nobody ever heard of, you know. <laughs> and a lot of good. Bob Gruen told me about one of those bands that were good, great even, but never caught on. The Miamis, he told me, wrote 78 number one hits that were never recorded. Gruen adds that at the beginning of the scene, most of the music industry ignored CBGBs, which allowed the bands to be bad, experiment, and try new things without record label A&R people crawling all over them. No commercial potential was a phrase people said often about those bands. They're yeah. great, they're a lot of fun, but no commercial. <laughs> Nobody's going to buy a record. The Ramones or, or, you know, any of those bands that were terrible. But, um, but good, they learned how to play in front of an audience at CDs. Hilly Crystal remembers that most of the record companies didn't have the vision to see commercial potential in most of the bands that played at CBGB's. These record companies, except for Seymour Stein, very few were interested. They used to put down Lana and say they were awful and she was awful and couldn't sing and this and they put down everybody, these A&R people, record companies. Very, very, uh, they weren't very good and they really couldn't. But, Bob Gruen told me, the stakes were a little lower at the beginning of the scene. It was really that kind of a incestuous scene where people, you know, were competing, but in a friendly way. If somebody got robbed, everybody else would do a benefit to get their equipment back, something like that, you know. It was a very friendly kind of competition. Uh, all for one and one for all, but I'm better than you, you know, my song's going to make it. Um, and I don't think that they really had... A, a desire for world domination. You know, it was like, can I meet a girl and get a free beer? <laughs> that, that was your reward. Lisa Brownlee used to be a tour manager for the Warped Tour and worked in the organization for 24 years and is currently the co-founder of the Punk Rock Museum, a 12,000 square foot space dedicated to five decades of punk rock located at 1422 Western Avenue in Las Vegas, midway between the Strip and downtown. She says CBGB's was an incubator because it built a hangout space for people who might not have known that they wanted to be a musician until they hung out and saw their friends play on stage. I just think it was it was a place to hang out, right? It was like if somebody had a, a big living room, you'd hang out there, but instead you're hanging out at CBGB's. And, and then once every, every band that would play, the next band would be in the audience and go, I can do that and I want to do that. Right, so you'd see your friend up there 
doing a show, you think about the, anybody who would come to a television show or a Patti Smith show or a Ramones, and then the next generation, the next band that's going to get on stage is in the audience seeing what this is. And they're, it's undeniable, the energy, when you're in a, in a show like that where you're like, you know what, I can do this. Three chords, pick it up. One, two, three, let's do it. You never knew exactly who or what you might see when you went to see a show there. It might be like the night when Jane County was performing with their band The Backstreet Boys. As they played songs like Toilet Love and Man Enough to Be a Woman, Handsome Dick Manitoba, singer of The Dictators, taunted Jane into a fight. They punched, they kicked, they ended up rolling around on the club's beer-soaked floor. Marky Ramone, who was playing drums with the band, remembers Jane got back on the stage. Their white shirt was covered in Richard's blood. Jane looked at the audience and asked them if they wanted to quit or if they still wanted some rock and roll. Rock and roll, they screamed. Rock and roll! Or you might get a night, like the first time Bob Gruen saw the Ramones. And they did like, I don't know, maybe 10 songs in 16 minutes. And I feel the way, it's a quote from Legs McNeil, like, but... Uh, I don't know what I saw. I don't know what just happened, but I know I want to see it again. You know, uh, it just came and went so fast, and it was so powerful, and always was. I mean, the Ramones show is the most powerful, you know, thing that's out there, yeah. and um, and so people gravitated to that. You go to see these and you really get some energy to go back out and do it again the next day. We had different kinds of bands, but I, I tried to put like bands together. Right, and and we didn't have uh, well, you know, they were all they were all a bit different. And the Talking Heads were not like the Ramones, but uh, I think we even had to play together. I asked Mary Heron if there was one night that stands out among the rest. It's funny. I don't know if it's one night, but I remember like with my best friend. Francis and maybe Jim Walcott was there and and just sitting at the bar and television playing at 3 a.m. Mm. and an incredible set and and Jim sort of turned me and saying that was the greatest you know, thing I've ever heard and there were like 10 people there wow. and they played as, as incredibly as, as they ever had yeah. for just a few people and it was really sort of magical. You know, and I don't think anything on record can, that's an annoying thing to say, but nothing captured just what it was like listening to that. So much music, so many memorable nights. The police who played there on their first American tour showed up at 10.30 p.m. and had to do a sound check in front of the audience before banging out two sets at midnight and at 2.30 a.m. With not enough new material to fill out the second set, they jammed on the instrumental sections of their songs, a practice that became a mainstay of their live shows. Elvis Costello opened for The Voidoids. In August 1975, Talking Heads featured Psycho Killer in their 16th CBGB appearance in 10 weeks. The Misfits played their very first show as CB's auditionees in 1977, and an unknown Beastie Boys played there as a hardcore band in 1992. And that's not to mention bold-faced names like The Heartbreakers, Richard Hell, Suicide, The Cramps, all who got their start there. They're the names that made the club on the Bowery famous, but the real legacy of Hilly Crystal's Punk Palace isn't just in the names like Mink DeVille, The Dead Boys, The Dictators, The B-52s, or The Flesh Tones, among others. It's in the sound and fury unleashed at CBGB's that still reverberates today. 
It's in the spirit of unbridled imagination that thrived within those walls. It's in the outsiders who did it themselves and inspired a movement. Is it possible to overestimate how important CBGB's was to punk rock music? Impossible. It's, it's impossible. I mean, music starts with live performance, right? It, it, it's, of course, it's about all the other things I mentioned, the fashion, the DIY, but the, what it's about is, is the bands getting up on a stage and playing. And when I was growing up in Florida, we didn't have a lot of that. So what I created was we created our own environment where we're doing this in backyards, right? Like you're doing skateboarding, you would do out your show outside, you know, because the weather permitting in Florida, you could always do a show there. So bringing that indoors is, is incredible, right? I was experiencing all the things I was experiencing and like, there was a club in Miami called the Kitchen Club that I saw the Bad Brains at, which is like, you know, one of my most iconic moments growing up is seeing the Bad Brains at the Kitchen Club, which was Miami's version of what they would probably think CB's was. So, but still, it, it, none of it would compare to like the, the amount of bands that came out of CB's playing their, their, their shows starting in, you know, right after the opening of the 70s. You talk about Patti Smith and television and you could go on and on with the most beastie boys i mean chili peppers name it you name a, a band and they ended up there cbgb's is gone now a distant memory closed after a dispute over rent with the landlords the music stopped in october 2006 after a blistering three and a half hour final show with patty smith her band and special guests like flea from the red hot chili peppers and television's richard lloyd who played the band's signature tune marquee moon smith paid tribute to the club's legacy playing the dead boy sonic reducer four ramones tunes blondie's the tide is high her own songs of course and a mashup of her glorious version of the Van Morrison and Them song Gloria with the Ramones anthem Blitzkrieg Bop. The last song played on the legendary stage was Smith's Elegy, where she listed CBGB musicians and other music figures who had died during the CBGB era. The space at 315 Bowery was replaced by a men's retail store, John Barbados, in 2008, added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2013, and now has a new occupant, Italian-based art gallery Spazio Amanitia. The famous awning, with the famous logo that launched a million t-shirts, now weathered and torn, is in the lobby of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, although the famous bathroom has been preserved in tribute to the building's rock and roll legacy. The place may be gone, but 315 Bowery is still a draw for anyone who knows all the lyrics to beat on the brat. As a tour manager, Lisa Brownlee brought bands through CBGB's, and now she's a New York City resident. You know, when I moved here as a non-New Yorker in 2010, Arturo would laugh at me. People would laugh at me that I'd want to go take a picture in front of what was CBGB's. Right? Yeah. They're like, oh my gosh, it's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of you. But it's a, you know, it's a big deal. And I am completely nostalgic. I still walk over to the loft where I live with Arturo and say, the Ramones lived here and they, everybody would just walk around the corner and go to CBGB's. Like this, that area to me, it's the reason I moved to New York. I mean, of course I moved to, to live with Arturo, but I'm, I'm, so deeply embedded with what I thought, you know, just the punk 
culture from the 70s, the early 70s, and what broke punk into the mainstream, really. When I got the opportunity to come here and live around the corner from CBGB's, no matter if it had moved on, it was just iconic for me to go like, I can't believe I'm here in this neighborhood where everything that I cared about when I was young ex existed, even if it's not here anymore. So it, feel, it still feels really special. That was Last Call, a history of CBGB's, a place Henry Rollins says he still dreams about all the time. Stick around for the after party where we'll get to spend some up close and personal time with Lisa Brownlee, who'll fill us in on the loud and proud punk rock museum in Las Vegas. First though, let's hear from Mary Heron, director of the films American Psycho, The Notorious Betty Page, I Shot Andy Warhol, Dallyland, and many more. As a music journalist, she helped start and wrote for Punk Magazine and was the first journalist to interview the Sex Pistols for an American publication. She was also a regular at CBGB's. I love this quote from you. It says, It never occurred to me to graduate and get a job. I just thought you went off and had adventures. And because you felt that you just went off and had adventures, you ended up kind of at the center of two punk scenes in London and in New York City, but they were quite different, I think. And can you describe to me what the difference is between New York City punk and CBGBs, which we're talking about today, and London punk? Well, I mean, CBGBs was, was earlier, what happened first. I mean, by the time I arrived and first went there, which I think was in October or November, it was late October, November, 75, the CBGB scene had already been going for a year, and even though I was fairly early to to join it, I always felt like, oh, if only I'd been there in '74 when Patti Smith was still playing and CBGBs and and Richard Hell was still in television, and oh, I missed out, you know. But in fact, you know, obviously it was an amazing time. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I found it, I, I, you know, it was. I didn't know even, there's a lot I didn't know about rock music. I wasn't one of those people who'd been a huge like Iggy fan or like had been, been you know, knew a lot about the the, the roots of bands that you know, were the roots of punk. I, I, you know, I knew about some things, but not that, and not those. But uh, I think what I, I felt when I found it was that I'd found New York City, I found Bohemia, like 1950s Bohemia or Paris in the 30s. Except there was a rock and roll one. I mean, it was very, it was quite literary. I mean, like Patti Smith was a poet and Richard Hell was a poet. I mean, they were kind of like more street poets, but they were poets. Um, it was older, like some people like Patti, I think was, at that point was like 28. Richard was like 26. I mean, you know, it wasn't as young as English punk. Um, and then the first time I went, I went with um, uh, John Holmstrom and Legs McNeil, who were starting Punk Magazine. It was the first time any of us had been, but it was this legendary place. And they they wanted to try do an interview with the Ramones. And they knew I had to, I, I always feel like part of it was just they knew I had a tape recorder because I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> so I brought my tape recorder and uh, and then Lou Reed was there, which was very exciting to me because the one thing I did know about was the Velvet Underground. Uh, and I had um, I've been introduced to them by friends of my sister and played played that you know I think Loaded had come out not long before and played that album a lot and at college you know uh, a lot of people you know played a lot of the Velvet Underground so I knew about them and then I was very into kind of obsessed with Warhol at the college magazines um, or the college magazine I wrote for 
in England. I'd done a big piece about Warhol and and the 60s, and I'd been to see a lot of his films. So to me, it was like, oh my God, wait till I tell my friends in London that I've, I've been in this, Lou Reed's here, I've been in this club with Lou Reed. And then we we met him and we, the the guys, uh, Legs and John, I was kind of embarrassed, like, oh my God, that's so rude and so bold. They just went up and badgered him to give him this interview and we ended up going, having this crazy late night, in which he was quite mean to us, actually. <laughs> and I felt like at the time, like, oh, he, that's actually kind of really embarrassing. Like he's just been mean to us, and and John Holmstrom after we we taped everything was jumping up and down saying, "I have a magazine, I have a magazine," because he knew what he could do with the interview. Mm-hmm. But before then, we'd watched the Ramones, and it was just like a kind of hit by a rocket, you know. And I, I really remember saying, "I don't know if this is good or bad, but it's kind of really amazing." Um, I you know I, I don't have no judgment on on what this actually is, except that it's very exciting and, and intense, and the place was kind of very. Um, uh, broken down, but kind of exciting, intriguing. I liked the fact that New York was sort of dirty and gritty at that point. Um, and then uh, that sort of, and then I wrote up, and they, oh, yes, they didn't have a, uh, they wanted to talk to Lou, so they said, can you go interview the Ramones? So that was how I did the first interview with the Ramones, which I think was the first published interview. And I think pretty much it was actually. Um, and, and I didn't know how I, I asked kind of, you know, some sort of earnest student magazine questions with, with the DD about like, you know, violence in their songs or some crap. Uh, and, uh, and he was like, <laughs> but it was funny. They were funny. He was like, what is this? Who is this woman? Um, <laughs> but it was very, it was fun and it made a good, it made a good piece, good interview. And, um, and then later on, I like. I did, I did, it definitely was the first published interview with Talking Heads mm-hmm. um, for the second issue. And then I became part of it. And I remember one night I just moved, found a, uh, an apartment on St. Mark's Place, uh, kind of a mythic street. I didn't know that at the time. I just ended up there in an apartment on St. Mark's Place between First Avenue and A. And I, I didn't know that many people. I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just stop by that club that we went to. And I walked in and and Legs was there talking to Richard Hell, and I met uh, and Talking Heads were there. And I just like, oh, I can go here any night and I just have a home. So that was that. Um, and it was very um, warm and friendly, actually. I know people don't think of punk that way. I remember it was my first experience of something really taking off. Like we wrote, we published this, I put, the first, issue of punk magazine and i remember walking across town to to deliver my copy to to john holmstrom who was sitting up late at night in the punk magazine the punk dump it was called it was an office on 10th avenue in the 30s it was like an old i don't know know what it was an old shack um and um and he showed me that he'd done the louis interview as a cartoon as a comic strip so i thought oh wow that's genius these people are really smart um and then it came out, and I, th- I just thought, oh, well, that's nice. We've done something, like a little, like a student magazine almost. And then uh, right away, um, James Walcott, who later became a very good friend, who was a sort of very hip writer for The Voice, he wrote about it in The Village Voice. Like, oh, my God, we, this was like so obscure what we were doing. Suddenly it's written about in The Village, Village Voice, and then, and then it got sort of taken up. 
as a lot of stuff at CBGB's did. I mean, it seemed like just this obscure hole in the wall, but a lot it did make waves. And, uh, and that was just my experience. And then when the punk, British punk started, that was crazy. Because mm -hmm. then I remember for a very brief time, John Holmesford managed to get some money for Punk Magazine and he hired me and Roberta Bailey to work for some you know, very small but welcome amount of money to, to work in the audience. And I remember doing filing and we were filing all these news stories from all around the country, like crazy number. They had a wire service, I guess, you know, clipping these stories, actual clippings of all around the country that people were writing about punk. And it was because of British punk being mm -hmm. sort of outrageous. I mean, in I had already seen it because, you know, I'd grown up and I'd spent my teenage years in London, gone to university in, in England. And uh, I had a return ticket in August 1976 that I had to use up. And I wanted to see my friends anyway. And, you know, I, my family was still, my mother was still there and sister. Um, no, my mother and whatever. I'd still have family there. And um, I used up this ticket. And I remember at the bar at CBGB's, John Holmes saying, you should go and do an interview with Eddie and the Hot Rods. And, and who were like a, you know. It's a pub rock during punk band kind pub of thing. Rock, yeah. but, but at the time we're, we're like, you know, popular. And he said, and, and if you can, um, get an interview with the Sex Pistols. I had never heard of the Sex Pistols. They said he wanted to talk to Iggy and the Hot Rods, the Sex Pistols, and Brian Eno, and all of which I did when I was over there. And so I went there, and, and by the time I got there, like, it was crazy. And that was very exciting to be in on, on British punk. But I remember I went to the 100 Club, not for the famous um, first punk festival. It was big. I just missed that, but I went to the hundred punk to see the damned, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was everybody seemed like sixteen, and it was really intense, and feral and kind of wild. And I just thought, oh my god, they've taken all this literally. Like I knew that there was something quite even among the Ramones, and definitely among the Ramones, there was something quite arty about and conceptual about American punk. Like there was. You know, the fact that they were doing uh, the leather jackets and the, the 50s thing. I mean, it was it was constructed, you know, mm. in a kind of ironic, humorous way, even though it was in the music was very intense. There was certain an attitude. It was kind of like an art attitude. In. And of course, there was obviously from Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood were very art people. But the, the kids were so young. And all you felt was this release of like anarchic, crazy, violent energy. And I remember going to another concert and just like in a pub, like the Greyhound, I think, in West London. And at the end of the night, the the ground was just covered with shattered glass or maybe with shattered plastic, but it was yeah. like a bomb site. And you never got that in American punk. So it was like, and, and like a lot of spinning and a lot of crazy povoing, and it was just like wild. And and it was very different. And and it was, you know, obviously super important and very thrilling. I love the Sex Pistols. I went to see them in Liverpool. I really loved them. I had a great interview with the Sex Pistols. Um, but uh, it was, it then had a much stronger identity and a look. And then in order to be a punk, you know, you. You had to kind of do have a certain look, and I, and, and fashion I did was much more. American punk was more, you know, conceptual and arty. 
And British punk was wilder and more working class, although not entirely, and some of that was fake, but definitely had this strong working class, violent, rebellious thing. Um, but it was also more fashioning. And it was much more about like, you should look a certain way. It was more tribal because, you know, the British rock culture generally was very tribal. You know, if you were a mod, you had to dress away. If you were a rocker, you dressed a certain way. If you were, uh, you know, heavy metal, you dressed a certain way. And so it definitely had this strong visual identity, which I kind of, and I kind of loved in New York, that you'd have people, some people with long hair, you know, you'd have just everything. And I, I, I miss that kind of, also, oh, it was easier for me to fit in, and I just felt like you didn't have to dress a certain way or look a certain way. It was, it was very accepting. And it was also, I guess, in CBGB's, uh, it, was a, it was a dump, it was a dive, you know, but that also made it very, very homey, mm -hmm. very comfy. In a way. Well, did you know Hilly Crystal? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was your take on, on Hilly? Oh, I, I loved Hilly. I mean, I mean, to me, he was always friendly. Also, like I, I turned up like years later, you know, I'd been away. I I'd moved to Paris for a bit and then I was in London. I'd been working in George TV and it was like years and like 10 years or something, maybe eight years. And I walked in and said, hello, Mary, how are you? <laughs> I couldn't believe you remembered me. It was amazing. Um, so I, he was always friendly to me. Um, I mean, obviously that's my personal take, but I think he was a good guy and, and to me, and people always said he didn't understand the music. It didn't matter. You know, he had, I mean, too, one of the greatest things you can do and, and a great artistic movements have, have been caught, have been created by this. You should get one person who says yes. So Haley Crystal just said yes. He said yes to Tom Verlaine and Richard when they said they wanted to play there. He said yes to all kinds of bands if they wanted to play there. He said, yes, fine, come in, you know, small cover charge. Yeah. Yes, you can play. And he created the venue. It didn't matter what he thought about the music. He allowed it to, to play. And maybe he liked it, you know, but he allowed it to play. And without Hilly, there would have been no scene. Well, this it, is it. So why was CBGB's the, the, the center of this scene? There were other clubs. There weren't that many other clubs, from what I understand. But there were still a few. Max's Kansas City was probably still around and, and a few places like that. But what was it about CBGB that, that made it such a perfect incubator for creativity? I mean, it was location partly. It was on the mm. bow. I remember the first time I walked to CBGB, going to CBGB, was the first time I actually walked there as opposed to when I went with Legs and, and John. Uh, I walked along the Bowery from my new apartment. And, you know, they, it was really the Bowery then. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, bums on the Bowery, a lot of bums, but, you know, setting fires in trash cans. It was graffiti everywhere. It was really, it was very exciting to me. New York was just all beautiful. It was all beautiful and exciting to me. Um, and like, you know, broken down billboards and shattered glass. I mean, it was a kind of New York then, it was more like the bombed out New York. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of people, we all lived around there. You know, like I, I would walk home from CBS at three in the morning, you know, every night. I mean, that I went there. I know that the, the Ramos lived around the corner. Yeah. Um, with Arturo, Arturo's loft, the Ramos loft was there. Um, uh, uh, Talking Heads were on the Bowery, you know, Richard Hell was in the East Village on 12th Street, I think. Um, everybody, everybody lived around there. So it was like a local hangout. Max's felt a bit more uptown. 
and it had a lot of association, even though if you weren't at CBGB's, you would, you know, run over to Max's. Really, it was really those two places. There was another club, Club 80 something, or the, you know, there were other clubs later, but it was really those two places. And um, it was associated, it was Max's back room, it was associated with Warhol, those Warhol years in the 60s. It was just a little more upscale, I think. I don't know, it, it, it was not as much of a, it was bigger, and it wasn't like this little homey club that CBGB's was. Well, and I'm sure that a beer and a pack of cigarettes cost more than $1.50, which is what I'm told was the price uh, at the bar at CBGB. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, dollar for beer, cigarettes for 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And did you ever try the chili? Never. I, in fact, I think every so often you would see somebody like very rarely, but somebody had like food. It's like, oh, my God, did nobody think they ordered food here? But I remember I knew the cook there who was a nice girl. And it's like, but why do they need to cook? Nobody ever eats there. Mm -hmm. And if you if you wanted to eat, it's when I was trying to explain to my daughter, we were walking through the East Village a few days ago, and I was trying to explain to her uh, where you would go and eat back then. Because she was saying, what, what, where did, you know, what restaurants you go? I said, really there was, uh, the two Ukrainian restaurants, Veselka and the Kiev, that were open all night. And I think we tended to go to the Kiev, um, although now, of course, we go to Veselka because the Kiev is built. But they were, um, you would go from CBGB's and you'd end up at two in the morning at the Kiev and basically you'd see tons of people that you'd, you'd already been in the same little club with. Um, and then there was like Second Avenue Deli. There was one Italian restaurant, John, which is still there. Like yeah. a little on 12th Street. Yeah. On 12th Street. Yeah. And I remember, like, my dad came to town and we went to Jaws. Like, oh, I get, you know, going out to a restaurant, you know. <laughs> um, you didn't go to restaurant culture and, like, cocktail culture uh, did not exist until I remember then, maybe it was 78, 77 or 78, a really beautiful place called Lady Astor's opened on Astor Place. And they, we would sometimes go there for a cocktail for a Bloody Mary. And that was really kind of really nice. But that was, you couldn't eat there, you'd go for a cocktail. So that was that was that. And then Phoebe's down the down the down the street, a block away from CBGB's, which was more like a a theater hangout. Mm -hmm. um, if you were trying to, you know, get a if there was an act on that you didn't want to see, you might go there for coffee and cheesecake or something. Yeah, that was where we went. Well, I used to see Joey Ramone at Vasalka all the time. Yes. He lived on St. Mark's Place around the corner, and he was there for breakfast, lunch, and well, maybe not breakfast, but for lunch and dinner. I saw him there uh, for years, every yeah. day, twice a day, having soup. Yes, I know. Soup, I still go there. I, yeah. what, yes, even though I live way up, I live in Washington Heights now, but my husband and I will go all the way down uh, to Basilica for there. It, it's, it's kind of one of the last remaining places down there to my mind anyway, that just has that legacy that's just been there forever. Everything else seems to have changed in that neighborhood so much in the last little while. Yes, it's funny, that, and then there's Cafe Mogador, which is, mm. um, which happened later. I can't remember when Cafe Mogador started. It wasn't there when I was living there, I think. Um, but that's been around there for 40 years. And, and uh, in fact, that's where my daughter and I uh, were having lunch. And uh, yeah, it, it has, you know, there's worse gentrification in other parts of, of 
the city, but it definitely many, many places. New York does not preserve its heritage. It's mm -hmm. bad, uh, I'm afraid, yeah. Um, but there, you know, some of the places on the um, Avenue A, you know, you're just, you're just so excited when you, you know, Gem Spa, we all would go to Gem Spa. And because I lived, it was on St. Mark's Place and I would walk up to Gem Spa and may, or walk back and stop in there. That was open all night and you could get an ice cream there or something or cigarettes because I smoked in those days. Um, and newspapers and magazines. And that hung on for the longest time. And then they lost the lease or something happened and it's, God knows what it is, the bank or something. Or a bubble tea place. Bubble tea place. Yeah, it's sad, but you know. <laughs> New York, New York moves on, you know, moves on, but there it's, and even though people are all, there was a great um, article in the New Yorker a little while back by someone who'd grown up on St. Mark's Place, which I have such intense and fond memories of, of, New York, of St. Mark's Place. Um, and she says that everybody who lived on St. Mark's Place thinks that their era was the greatest. And for me, like St. Mark's Place is 75, late 70s, 75, 78 or whatever, that, that was never as good after that. And, you know, if you're in the 60s, it was like, my God, it was that was the time, you know, because it, it was a big hippie street. Mm -hmm. And then she grew up there in like the early 2000s. And her, it's like, well, it will never be the same as it was in the early 2000s. And I think that people, I remember when I moved to New York in 75, everybody said, oh, well, if only you'd been here 10 years ago. Or if only you'd been here in the 50s yeah. or the 40s. And that was when New York was really great. And now people look back on, and, and, and now New York sucks. Oh my God, the city's collapsing. There's you know, there's it's lawless, there's crime. And, you know, I remember in the East Village, like really the East Village, like far down, like down Avenue B or C, I had a couple of friends who lived down there. And like, they didn't even bother to check the electricity. It was like this law, you know, the authority, almost like a, the authorities have abandoned it. Uh, and that was considered so terrible, but it was actually, of course, a very exciting time. Well, people, artists could afford to live down there, and that's that's where the, the that's where it all comes from. You you, and that is gone now. I think. I thought it was uh, interesting that in my interview with Hilly Crystal from 1992, he said, "It's crazy now here. Apartments they're like six hundred dollars. Who could <laughs> afford six hundred dollars to live down here?" It's crazy. I know. Yeah. And now it would be three thousand or four thousand. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but um. I do feel like New York revives New York sort of somehow from the from the ground up, um, and it's always. I mean, it's funny because my daughter, my old, other daughter, older daughter, wrote the, her thesis on on New York and regeneration and everything, and read a lot of Jane Jacobs. And there's a great quote from Jane Jacobs about how New York, New York, you know, how New York sort of regenerates. You know, it's written off, and then somehow, you know, from the streets it comes back up and it may be, you know, you have to go to Queens, which is really a great borough, which I would never have dreamed of going to Queens when I, uh, when I was young. Like that would have seemed like going, if you said, are you, do you want to come to the North Pole? <laughs> How do you even get to Queens? And now of course it's like the greatest, you know, all the different communities, it's a great neighborhood. You go to go to eat in Queens. Um, but there's other parts that I feel you know, for all the sort of corporate, you know, there's a terrible corporate takeover of, of Manhattan, but that too is temporary. Um, I mean, now all the office buildings are empty. So what will happen to Midtown? What's going to what's going to grow in its place? Maybe something good, maybe something bad, but it could be something good. And and New York does have a great. It's so crowded and so crazy, but there is a great spirit of 
people take it over and make something of it, which mm -hmm. I'm hoping will happen in those empty office buildings. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm too optimistic. Do you remember, other than the first night with Lou Reed and the Ramones are playing, a one night that really sticks out in your memory? It's funny. I don't know if it's one night, but I remember, like, with my best friend Francis and maybe Jim Walcott was there, and, and just sitting at the bar and television playing at 3 a.m. Mm. And an incredible set. And and Jim sort of turned me to saying that was the greatest you know, thing I've ever heard. And there were like 10 people there. Wow. And they played as, as incredibly as, as they ever had yeah. for just a few people. And it was really sort of magical, you know. And I don't think anything on record can, that's an annoying thing to say, but nothing yeah. captured just what it was like listening to that. Well, Mary, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, thank I, you. I, I enjoy going back there in, in my mind. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. That was Mary Heron. Next, let's learn more about Las Vegas's Punk Rock Museum from co-founder Lisa Brownlee. Congratulations on the Punk Rock Museum. Thank you. It is, it's still, it's still settling into my brain that this is real, that we, that we made this, we did this, and this is what I do with my life now. You have one thing that I'm desperate to see. There's probably hundreds of things I'm desperate to see, but there's one thing that I know about, and that is uh, Joe Strummer's last bag of weed. <laughs> I we think that's, it, that's like, yeah, we always say that's like our most, I mean, look, anybody who knows me knows that I'm probably one of the biggest Clash fans in the world and particularly Joe Strummer fans. So when we got that, it was like this like Hail Mary moment, like, are you kidding me? You know, it, it's so iconic. And Mike loves to, when he's doing his guided tours, we go, you know, there's all these gigantic, incredible Joe's guitar, all these incredible clothing. And he's like this big, there's Joe Strummer's <laughs> last bag of weed. So that, yeah, it, it's pretty epic. And uh, that came to us by, by way of, you know, word of mouth like what mm. this belongs in a museum and you are right it does belong in a museum i think it's the uh intimate items the things that define the person i think that are probably always going to be the most interesting part of a display like this yeah i mean another thing that's pretty incredible uh our art director brian turcott who you might know he did the book fucked up and photocopied and he's just an, an incredible collector but he we have a lot of his collection but uh we have darby crashes little black book and it's got every phone number you can ever imagine of like wow you know and then when Lorna Doom passed her family got in touch and gave us all of her personal artifacts just so they can have a good home right so mm -hmm. it's these things that and I'll never this will never get old for me I'm still blown away that we have Lemmy stuff and just stuff that's like you never dreamed in your wildest dreams when you were a kid getting into all this stuff that this would be something that would ever come to, to fruition. So it's, it's it's an incredible honor that people trust us and let us uh, build this place. Do you have anything from CBGB in the museum? We do. We have a variety of things. We, we'd obviously like to do more. They were just celebrating their big anniversary this mm -hmm. year. So they were 
keeping that close to the vest for now until they were able to celebrate their own stuff. But we're we're constantly talking to them, talking to them because it, even if we replicate one of the bathrooms, right? Yeah. So so we, we definitely have a relationship with them, and we hope to bring a, a, a bigger presence of them into the museum soon after their anniversaries pass. That was Lisa Brownlee. If you're ever in Las Vegas, go see Joe Strummer's last bag of weed and much much more at the Punk Rock Museum at 1422 Western Avenue. For more information, check out thepunkrockmuseum.com. That's it for this episode of Last Call with Richard Krauss. If you ever find yourself in New York, make your way down to 315 on the Bowery and try and imagine getting a beer and a pack of smokes for a buck fifty while listening to music that changed the world. My thanks to CBGBs for being a portal for some of my favorite music. Also thanks to Mary Heron, Lisa Brownlee, Lucasta Ross, and Bob Gruen. Check out some of his legendary photos of CBGBs at bobgruen.com. And of course, I have to thank the late, great Hilly Crystal for taking my phone call way back in 1992. As always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. Cheers, everybody, and I hope you'll join me next time on Last Call with Richard Krauss when we visit another great bar.